Hello, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kenji Ross, a strategist at EPAM Continuum. I started building things for the internet in the very late 90s, and it didn't take too long before I crossed paths with a fellow named David Rose. I was working at a digital marketing startup. He had founded a company called Ambient Devices in 2002, whose website we were building. I was trying to wrap my head around ways to make simple websites render properly. David was already light years ahead, building small, subtle internet-connected devices that would react to changes in data weather, stock prices, that sort of thing. Essentially, in the early 2000s, he was already working on the Internet of Things, which the rest of us would come around to, oh, some 15 years later, and trying to get us unglued from our screens. Today, he's joining us to talk about his new book, Supersight, What Augmented Reality Means for Our Lives, Our Work, and the Way We Imagine the Future. And, interestingly, we're still talking about small, subtle things. The sort of interventions are little nudges that can change behavior and shift consciousness. In his conversation with Resonance Test producer Ken Gordon, he talks about AR experiences that don't monopolize your entire attention, that aren't weaponized to maximize ad exposure and engagement. Instead, he posits a future where we do a little more exercise, have better conversations with each other, envision happier urban spaces. The technology can enable both utopian and dystopian futures. For those of us in the making things real fields, it's worth thinking about which side we'd like to be on. David Rose, good to be in conversation with you again, my friend. You too, Ken. It's really, I wish we could all be in the studio together, but it's really, really fun fun to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah. So let's begin with uh, Supersight. Can you tell our listeners what it is exactly and why it matters uh, to them in 2022? Sure. Well, I guess everybody has been uh, enraptured with this idea of the metaverse uh, for the last few months, right. and uh, and you know, SuperSight really talks about you know what are the new capabilities that that we now have with AI uh, to be able to interpret what is seen by, either by cameras or by uh, something that we're wearing on our face that allows us to do scene understanding and to understand and and to see what we see um, and you know guide us and I think it really changes will change computing entirely because you know we mobile has kind of been the mobile and cloud have been the disruption uh, over the last decade uh, voice interfaces I guess have been another disruption another way that has really changed how we interact with technology and I think the next one that's coming and coming fast is um, is a blended view that where we see the world and then we see other phenomena uh, that's digitally created over that view of the world. Cool. Now, one of the things about your book I admired was the fact that you both laid out the tremendous promise and real hazards of Supersight and that you followed uh, Dunn and Raby and that your book, rather than offering an easy way forward, highlights the dilemmas and trade-offs between imperfect alternatives. Can you maybe walk us through the six hazards you pointed out in the book and tell us about what people need to watch out for when they're dealing with um, SuperSight? Sure. So the six hazards that I point to in the book are um, social insulation, where if you can blend 
digital layers over your view of the world, you will obviously choose to personalize that in a way that I don't see. And so how in the same way that we have this bubble filter problem with social media, uh, it could even be more acute with uh, personalization of what people see. So I call that social insulation. Uh, another one is uh, kind of a surveillance state, what I, which, I, which I call... Uh, which is when more and more cameras are embedded in doorbells and wearables and on our faces. Like those are, uh, that gives access to a data feed that's really unprecedented to people who want to uh, kind of see what we're interested in and what's what's uh, capturing our attention. Uh, the next one is closely related, and I call it pervasive persuasion, uh, which is you know the companies will be able to see and especially. I think the metaverse today is really the capital M metaverse. It's really dominated by Facebook and Microsoft and uh, coming soon, Apple and Google, uh, who have a, a, in a business model kind of based on understanding what peop- what is capturing your attention. So that will be even more effective with this, you know, could be more effective with this capital M metaverse that's dominated by big brands, which I, and I hope, and I talk in the book about kind of ways it could go the other du- the other direction. Mm-hmm. Another hazard I call cognitive crutches, which is the kind of what's happened with um, our ability to navigate the world or to uh, remember things has been kind of overtaken by GPS and and uh, googling everything. So, in what ways will we kind of come to rely on this and have uh, things like? our ability to have good conversations with other people kind of atrophy when we have conversational cues floating around everyone's heads. Um, And then I take on the issue of kind of the bias in in training data of these neural networks and then also equity and access issues. But I I think all of them can, as you were saying, kind of have ways to design um, a more open uh, or actually to use design to try to synchronize what people see in the world. So for example, you know, for social insulation, why not rather than having everyone view a different world, why couldn't you create like a, a bump gesture and have two people see uh, a common view or a, or swap views uh, to better understand what personalization each other is, is experiencing. So I, I do feel like there's room for design uh, and really thoughtful approaches um, as we, craft this future. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think your book really hints at is that we really have to take a sort of systems level approach to SuperSight and see it as integrated with human-centered design, thinking about how big data and privacy are involved, talking about business model innovation, how all these things will blend together for it to really work properly, because there's there's a lot going on there. Um, it, what, do you think of it uh, in terms of that sort of systems level uh elevation of this technology and how, how, how would might, we might imagine that? How would you talk about it? Um, about super site hitting on all those things. Yeah. Well, I talk in chapter two about how, you know, I think the, the biggest change for uh, a wearable that sees what you see will be um, kind of how computing changes and how to be more like an assistant, more like a, a genie or a gin <laughs> that every society has this notion of, of positive and negative a- angels on our shoulders that are influencing us throughout the day. And I, I think that's really one of the ways to think about how we uh, experience design will change with 
um, with SuperSight. So, and that's definitely a systems level issue because it's not just uh, whispering cues into your ear about um, how to interact differently with the people that you encounter or when to do your micro hit workout uh, in order to reduce your stress when you're particularly stressful. Uh, but it really is something that uh, encompasses um, other wearables like watches, other screens, other uh, IoT devices in your in that are all around you. And I, so I think this capability, which is really thought of as a head-worn uh, wearable, um, can orchestrate and uh, help you know simplify and tune and customize a lot of the other um, kind of systems as long as there's open standards for how things talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Now, at EPAM Continuum, where we used to work together, you and I, uh, you developed a really cool sort of COVID-era hand-washing project. Can you give some background about that and talk about the prototypes uh, you developed? Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, I think we we realized early in, in COVID that there was w- one of the few things that we could do was mask up, social distance, and practice better hygiene. And the uh, TedMed was uh, happening in Boston, so I was thinking, you know, what could we prototype very quickly and get some feedback on, since we had all these infectious disease uh, <laughs> uh, people in Boston. Um, at the Heinz, at the convention center, Heinz Convention Center. Right. So we created a, a couple of prototypes. Um, one was a type of AR. Most people think of glasses when they think of AR, but this we used a Pico projector, a little tiny data projector, and put it above a sink so that we could uh, project grossness, <laughs> project the germs that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see onto your hands. Right. And so then after thirty seconds, those. Uh, those germs gradually transition from looking like uh, spores and other, you know, gross grossness on your hands to sparkly clean. Um, and so that was kind of an animated uh, way of using an augmented projection onto an everyday behavior. Uh, and uh, another uh, another one that we we cr- another prototype that we created was around kind of using cuteness to seduce people into. <laughs> um, <laughs> In, in, into washing for 20 seconds. So we had a um, a Jeopardy tune that was played by a cute little box that sits adjacent to the soap dispenser, mm-hmm. and it purrs. Uh, and I'll t- it purrs because there's a there's a cat uh, that traditionally um, greets you when you walk into a, a place of business. You know, the the it's it's waving at you. It's called the waving cat, right. and. Um, and so we put one of those, which is kind of hard to miss because it's it's animated and moving um, next to the sink, and then it has a thirty a twenty second countdown uh, with an LED ring, and then it's also waving at you and purring the Jeopardy tune. So so it's a, so it kind of gives you a reason to stay there and and be more aware of how long you're you're washing your hands. Yeah, it was cool. The, the uh, these particular projects they coached me on how to use my electronic toothbrush uh, correctly. The handwriting, pro- the hand washing prototypes were all about sort of the key was to covering all the necessary surface area in a sort of regularly regimented amount of time. And I realized that my toothbrush had these four pulses, and what I realized that I was supposed to you would spend a, a certain amount of equal time in each of the four quadrants of your mouth. 
And I realized that if I did 10 seconds on, on the sort of front and back of each tooth, that would sort of um, match up for the four quadrants. And it really actually made me more careful about covering the surface area of each tooth. And when I was done, my, my dentist was like, wow, this is fantastic. So it was all, I can thank you for that. And I think the lesson, the lesson for me is like, sometimes it just takes these little interventions, these little nudges, which can, which doesn't require wearing AR glasses, but could just be a little, a little projection, a little bit of feedback. I mean, we learned this at ambient device that ambient devices, um, the company that I that I started that made a, uh, a color shifting orb that could change that could you know track the stock market or track when the next bus is coming or how many steps you've walked uh, just through the shift of color and if you can get somebody just to like tune into that one ambient cue uh, you can really change people's behavior um, in a durable way. That's true. And uh, is there any other kind of coaching that you think is really important? The coaching function of SuperSight that you you want to talk about a little? I know you talk a lot about coaching. Is there anything that you think the coolest, most sort of promising um, coaching function for SuperSight? Well, I, I do think that there's a big opportunity for these little snackable pieces of feedback that you could provide to somebody throughout the day. Um, and just to get somebody to kind of de-stress, do some box breathing, you know, where you breathe in for a certain number of seconds and then you hold it and then you breathe out for the same number of seconds and then you hold, you know, a little bit of that um, can really change people's um, kind of experience of stress throughout the day. Um, in the same way, you know, I have a, I make coffee that takes about 20 seconds and and sometimes I will try to do some squats or, or do a, or a, have a pull-up bar between two rooms of the house. And if I can do like two pull-ups on my way through, um, it's a lot easier than going to the gym. And, and I think it's shown that a little bit of, of exercise kind of spread evenly throughout the day is something where, you know, maybe we could, maybe architecture should focus more on um, kind of making, rather than making more seamless um, easy to pass through uh, experiences of our architecture to make things more uh, more undulating surfaces, more stairs up and down, um, more kind of reasons to uh, you know to to move your body and, and de stress throughout the day. I, I certainly feel like I need that. Nice, nice. Now, you actually incorporate AR into the experience of reading your book. Can you, can you explain to like our residence test listeners how how this works? It was really cool. I think they would be interested to hear about what that was like. Sure. Well, when I went to, to the publisher and said, you know, I'd really like to do a book with a lot of photos in it because I'm a very visual person. I want like diagrams and and they should. It, so everything needs to be full color. And they said, no, no, <laughs> this is a uh, we don't have the budget. We don't know. We don't have the budget for that. Yeah. Um, so what I what I did was I put these little. Um, uh, in the margins, there are these small pictures that kind of ask you uh, visually to <laughs> to peer in and get more information. So there's there are a lot of I think there are you know eighty uh, things in the book where um, there's a little uh, glyph right. that is a box that's next to them, and if you pass your phone over that, the little image serves as a kind of the equivalent of a QR code, but it doesn't look like a QR code, but it's called an image anchor. And so um, the app 
that goes with the book recognizes these 80 different image anchors and then either provides a big picture, a big color picture of what you're seeing or a video of the product demo uh, that you're looking at um, or something that's, that actually like links to something that's interactive that allows you to like look at satellite data. Um, and for some of the frameworks, uh, like there's some two by twos that I put in, I do these kind of little chalk talks where I build up as if I'm at a whiteboard, um, like consider this axis and now consider this axis. And now, and then I kind of build it uh, with examples and a voiceover because, you know, that's kind of the way that I enjoy learning. Um, <laughs> so somebody kind of talks me through it. Uh, and so, you know, you can do that now because we're all probably holding a, hand, a phone in our other hand. Um, and I also just for fun, I, I did some kind of a, hacks of the of the idea of you know the consistency or the permanence of the book so there's on page 274 there's a um a set of design principles and the last design principles is, is use ar to keep things current and so and then it just looks like redacted text below it but it's because i couldn't figure out other design principles at the time and the publishing date was coming up. So I just stopped writing and thought, Oh, I can figure that out later. And people point their phone at it. It'll kind of appear like invisible ink and it will emerge. (laughs) That's cool. I thought it was really cool. And at first it was extremely cool. My wife saw it. She's like, it's just like Harry Potter when I first, (laughs) but to be honest with you, after a while it became like a lot of work just because I was trying to get through the book and I had to stop and get the phone out and load up the app and then run over it. And it made me realize, right, how important it is that we move really beyond phones into our glasses and to projecting holograms and everything else for a super site to really work effectively. And so my question for you now is how long do you think till we get there when we can move away from sort of the foam bring the primary um, intermediary to, to something else, something more projected? Yeah, I think the, the phone is a great prototyping tool, um, although it is monocular. Like it doesn't give you the full spatial 3D view of 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 something that's three-dimensional that's in front of you um and the actually having uh having seeing a different perspective from each eye is is a very is a very different and much more satisfying experience uh i talked to somebody at microsoft when i was researching the book who um he worked on a kitchen kind of visualization tool so similar to what ikea is doing with like landing furniture in your living room uh he was working on something that would you know allow you to kind of see a new kitchen uh he was working for a a german kitchen brand Mm -hmm. and i said well wouldn't just holding up an ipad kind of be sufficient for this and he said no 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 actually the the stereoscopic view is just so much more compelling um and also the hands-free is also like completely as a game changer too. Cause if you can, if you're, if you're working on something doing electronics or plumbing or, uh, dangerous electrical work up high, <laughs> you really, you really need both hands, uh, in order to be doing the work. And, and then, so seeing the superimposition, uh, in a hands-free mode is really, really important. Um, but in terms of the timing, you know, this year, uh, Nreal, N, like not M, but N-R-E-A-L, uh, is launching in Verizon stores. They have a uh, binocular, um, very bright, I think it's like 600 nits, which is how you measure brightness for these these displays, which means you can use it outside. Um 52 grams or so, which is like not that far away from normal chunky glasses. Uh, 
device that you plug in. It's tethered into your phone for for the compute, and that's a six hundred dollar price point. So what what Hololens was doing a couple of years ago or last year for thirty five hundred dollars is now you know really in reach. Um, and now there, Vuzix has another another offering. Uh, Google is coming out with one. Apple's rumored to come out with one. Um, Samsung has uh, a pair of glasses. Uh, you know, really all of the big consumer electronics brands are in investing billions of dollars in trying to make kind of all day light enough, uh, don't look too dorky right. solutions. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you talk about quite a bit in the book is sort of tracking eye movement. And you talk about prediction as well. And I was wondering, I think if you, we can get to the point where we're constantly sort of tracking our eye movements and what we, what our eye falls on, what we're attracted to with by checking it by our sight, wouldn't that kind of abolish kind of the lag time between desire and acquisition? Because it would become sort of where you look at something you want and you would be uh, this sort of friction pay, payless, this frictionless payment model. And it, it just struck me as like, boy, that could be really dangerous. If with everyone has eyes to see, suddenly seeing whatever they want, they would start buying things all the time or even, you know, affect the, you know, the, the nature of relationships. If you started looking at people, <laughs> you were attracted. It could be really dangerous. And it made me wonder, how might we monitor the, the state of things and, and hit the safety when they start to get dangerous? Have you, have you thought much about that? Well, yeah, I do think there is potential for this kind of glanceable commerce uh, future, but I do, <laughs> I think it's going to be more interesting initially than it's going to be dangerous because I think uh, I don't think that it's automatically going on your credit card if you right. have you know if somebody's passing you and and you're really captivated by their backpack or their shoes, <laughs> okay. I don't think it's it's going to automatically send it to you, um, but it's probably going to put it on a you know, a, a to, to, to be considered, you know, uh, things like list and, um, and then presented to you later, either through ads or through just a, uh, you know, if your birthday's coming up or somebody else's birthday's coming up. So I think it's going to be more, um, more interesting because we will, a lot of what we dwell on with our visual f- field is subconscious. And right. so to make those things, subconscious things conscious we might learn more about ourselves you know maybe maybe you are interested in um certain types of wardrobe or certain or or certain uh certain looks or uh eating different food than you regularly order or um you know can other things, other things that you that you walk past that you dwell that, where you're, it does capture your attention and you don't even realize it's capturing your attention. So I th- I think it's going to be a useful mirror for us all to kind of learn more about ourselves as part of that. And actually, I I will tell you that it does seem incredibly intrusive for glasses to be looking at you and monitoring um, what you're fixating on, but. I think it's better than what we have today in terms, if you go like a, a lot of alt space, um, avatar based multiplayer experiences, mm-hmm. assume that you're looking at the other person that you're standing in front of. In fact, in fact, if you're in a circle of five people inside most of most avatar based, uh, chat rooms, everybody believes that everybody else in the chat circle is looking at them. Right. So <laughs> that's even more deceiving than I mean the g- gaze is such an important cue in conversation and you really want to know if 
you're talking and no one's listening, you know, no one's looking at you, <laughs> in which case you should probably stop talking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very interesting. And you talked a little bit about sort of having the option of, of blocking certain things from your site, right? When you're, when you're involved in super. Right. Yeah. Diminished reality. That's right. And the idea of curating your, your, what appears in, in, in your, you know, your field of, of vision is, is really an interesting concept. And there, there's so many ethical quandaries. It's so interesting. I think so much of the book, because I know you, David, you're such a positive thinking. You, you're always thinking of sort of the ideal future state. But it, just about everything you're talking about in this book has a black mirror undertone to it. And it really feels like those two things are fighting out. And it's, it's going to be something that we have to take very seriously as this becomes more um, sort of universally implemented, you know? The, the, yeah, I mean, what do, you th- what do you feel like is the, the worst, like what are the things that you're most worried about when it comes to diminished reality? Well, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, I, I just look at what's going on with social media and, and sort of the, the, the bubbles that people live in, right? If you could make it so that people could create worlds where they don't see what they don't want to, or they, you know, make uh, things they think are in their own mind uglier than they actually are by creating this sort of enhanced world, you could, you could really cause some problems for people. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I do. I do worry about that. The possibility of that. I th- I think the um the potential for you know blocking though has so much has so many positive sides too. Even though it does seem creepy, the like a lot of what Con- Tversky and Kahneman talk about in Thinking Fast and Slow is that you know we we do have. Uh, the ability to make, you know, kind of more logic, I don't want to say logical, but more um, kind of better decisions about ourselves when we're in these cool states right. rather than when we're in the hot state of, um, you know, when you're buying something at a store and you like, you pick up something else right at the checkout because you kind of, you're, you've already, uh, you've already made a commitment to buy something, and so you're like, "Well, a little, a little something else is no big deal." Or um, when you see product packaging that's very tempting in the moment, or you know, or uh, I mean, I've, Dan Ariely talks about this in terms of yeah. kind of the, the the mistakes that we all make because we're in these elevated kind of excited uh, states, activated excited states. And yeah. so I feel like if you could make a decision ahead of time to say, "I don't want to be tempted." By this set of things in the world, or I, or, or I always want to make these types of choices. Like I, I would even if it costs more money, I'd like to buy local. I'd like to um, buy things that are better for my body. I'd like to, you know, interact with not only the people that I usually interact with, but a new set of people. You know, please help me do that. And you make that decision ahead of time. This is certainly a technology that could help you fulfill on those commitments. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was thinking about as I was reading your book was: uh, Do you remember the "They Live," the John Carpenter movie "They Live" with the sunglasses? Mm. And I was thinking, "Wow, what if SuperSight could be a tool for sort of reading ideologies, or even, you know, on the other sense, a tool for creating them?" And I thought, "Man, there's a lot of sci-fi stuff here." And I was wondering, what are there? science fiction works influenced you and your thinking to the, those kinds of fictions really sort of help uh, sketch out for you, what you see in the future? Oh, inevitably. Yes. Uh, I, 
I mean, I just listened to a J.J. Abrams uh, podcast, and I was just thinking about what a dialogue it always is to ex- to read science fiction, to experience something in a movie. Um, I mean, I think the ones that are maybe the ho- holograms uh, <laughs> from you know from back in Star Wars and yeah. and an Avatar, the you know the movie Avatar, where you always have like a big table, Westworld, you have like kind of a big understanding of kind of a world in miniature. Um, those have always been really captivating to me as a, somebody who studied city planning, um, you know, being able to kind of pop up and see the world from a thousand feet up, um, just gives you a kind of a new way of understanding, a new way of thinking about the world kind of remade anew. And so those visions are really, really compelling. And I mean, I think one of the most interesting and important things that, that SuperSight can do, and I talk about this a lot in chapter nine is they can help people envision, like they can help people see what typically only what experts can otherwise see in their mind's eye. So if you walk by a, mm-hmm. an abandoned parking lot, like a, a city a designer, an architect, uh, somebody who designs parks, could you really uh, you know, Im- immediately reimagine how that space could be reused and made into more, more like a pocket park or something really functional in the city? And most of us, don't have that creativity. Um, but I do feel like with the ability f- for these glasses uh, to kind of project, to read the world around you, to understand the world around you, and then project like more walkability on our streets, more green space, more sustainable landscapes, like that will really get people to invest differently in kind of accelerating making the world better. Mm-hmm. in ways that are really vivid that like you couldn't otherwise see. But now if you see it, you say, Oh, now I'm going to talk to a friend about that. I'm going to try to make that happen. I'm going to invest in that. Right. That seems really positive. Yeah. No, I get that. Uh, and I, I, one of the things I was thinking about too, is you'd worked on a project called the screen door. The screen yes. Door concept project, right. Which is about sort of reopening the world and make it safe for people to come into sort of the public spaces again. And I was wondering, now that we're living through the the Omicron era of the pandemic, uh, is there anything you would change or add to that uh, experience that you you helped put together? And what do you think we'd be doing or going forward? Like, yeah, so so Screen Door was was really inspired by like a barber pole. It's a like a, it's a way, it's a standard way for you to see like a set of services that are offered by. Uh, a, a space in a city <laughs> that that you're interested in or like farm, the pharmacy uh, pluses that are all over Europe where you can, right. where you can immediately recognize, Oh, this is, this is a place I can go if I need, if I need um, medication. Um, so we thought, well, what if we could develop a beacon that could go, you know, in a very, very quickly stand up like a stick or bolt on to a, to a door and both, uh, provide some useful sensing to make sure that people who walk in aren't um, symptomatic with uh, a fever, um, but also could uh, kind of check people's vax status when they, if they tap in uh, with an app. Um, But then most importantly, really project to people who might want to go to that uh, establishment, like it's a bar or restaurant, the, that everyone who did enter has kind of passed the threshold for, um, for safe. And so it could become a differentiator so that, you know, you could, you would choose to go to a, a restaurant over another restaurant because mm-hmm. you know that there's screening that's happening. 
Um, so to me, it's it's still it seems like it's a more important idea than ever. Where that's always a question about you know is is should I shop at this grocery store or this other grocery store or is it safe uh, to enter this bar or or, or uh, <laughs> you know no is the answer I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, you know, you you sort of asked me this question earlier because you're such a good futurist. You kind of felt it was coming, but I want to turn it back to you and ask you what are your biggest fear and biggest hope uh, for SuperSite are? What are those things? Yeah, I guess my my biggest hope is that um, this technology can really affect like a meaningful change in the way that people see the world around them. You know that we can we can articulate what our values are, and uh, this can help us make decisions. And um, whether that's like an e-commerce type, you know, a shopping decision or a uh, interaction with someone else decision um, or just, you know, steer conversations in ways that are more um, empathetic, more equitable, you know, more understanding. Um, And, you know, I think it's going to be probably one of the most intimate technologies we've ever experienced because it will be, you know, in the plane between you and the person that you're across the table from or across the zoom call from. Um, and so it really has the, has the potential to, you know, kind of, uh, cue you throughout the day, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. So I hope, I hope we can design those things in ways that are, uh, you know, as, as humanistic and as, you know, bolstering of the, the types of conversations we want to have and the types of interactions we want to have um, and not be something that's kind of handed down to us and polluted by advertising as, as I think a lot of, a lot of people have envisioned. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great, David. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate your, your, uh, your take on this. And I appreciate that you wrote a book that isn't just explaining the phenomenon, but trying to give some people some, some design guidelines and some ways of thinking about it from a human centered and kind of ethical um, uh, approach. And I think that'll be really useful to a lot of people out there who read this. Well, thanks, Ken. I, I appreciate all your good questions. And I do feel like it is the, if you're, if you were a designer today and uh, in the same way that the, designing for the web or designing for mobile kind of kind of overtaken uh, the field. I think designing for spatial uh, is something that you should tune into and, and uh, try to increase, increase your skills in that direction. Cause I think there's a whole new set of UX uh, paradigms and gestures and uh, that, that will, that we need to build and we need to, to design um, for this, this new coming world. All right. It's a, it's a whole new world. Let's get to work. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks are due to our guest David Rose for a visionary interview. He was interviewed by our producer, Ken Gordon. Kit Palalis is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Kenji Ross. Until the next one, thank you.